Let's pray. Oh, God, you, you came to live the beautiful life in our midst. To take a few moments now in worship, open your word and consider that life. How our lives interface with his, make it clear. Let us leave this place upbeat with courage for the adventure that awaits us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm scanning uh, the Bloomberg website the other day. Wanted to check up what's the business and uh, economic news coming down the pike. And I spot an intriguing headline. And of course, they always put these headlines where you spot them so that you'll, you'll look. Here's the headline. Join the 1% and live a decade longer. Wow. Whatever that 1% is, I'd like to be a part of it. The 1%? It's probably, uh, I don't know. Well, who are the 1%? I'm thinking 1% of all Americans drive Toyota Camrys. Maybe that's it. Live a decade longer. So I read it. The wealthiest Americans. Oh, great. That's the 1% you're talking about? Forget it. I'll never be in that group. Very few of us will. The wealthiest Americans can expect to live at least a decade longer than the poorest, and that gap, as, as with income inequality, is growing ever wider. New research in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, shows top-earning Americans gain two to three years of life expectancy between 2001 and 2014, while those at the bottom gain little or nothing. Plenty of research has already shown that health and wealth are intertwined and that they generally improve in tandem as you move up the income scale. But this year, wildly divergent incomes among Americans in the vanishing middle class, I guess that's the rest of us, have been central issues in a vitriolic race for the White House. Today's JAMA research shows in the starkest terms yet how disparities in wealth are mirrored by life expectancy. Now listen to this. For example, take a 40-year-old man in the top 1%. He can expect to live on average to 87. His counterpart in the bottom 1% would be expected to perish on average before his 73rd birthday. Go figure. For women who live longer on average, you go, girls, the gap was narrower, but still substantial. Life expectancy for the richest women is almost 89, about 10 years longer than the poorest. By the way, that little lady that we just talked about, the, the, the 32 cockatiels, she died at the age of 70. Millionaires, kidney stones. I guess it doesn't matter which percentage you're in, nobody has a lock on life, 10 years or zero. What's the title here? Join the 1% and live a decade longer, but I got great news for you. I got a title even better this morning. Join the 10% and live forever. So what do you want, 10 years or forever? Let's go for the forever. Jesus has less than a week to live. No extra decade for him, for sure. But in a dramatic episode near the end of his life, the secret to the 10% is embedded. So let's go. Grab your Bible. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke, chapter 19. We're going to Jesus here on the next last Sabbath of this school year at Andrews University. The Sabbath that finally brings us sunshine after a whole semester. Ah, Luke, chapter 19. I'll be in the NIV. Any Bible you have? You got your, uh, you got any Bibles up here? You, tablets or anything like that? Okay. Well, I'll read for you. I'll be in the NIV. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus has just spent the day. So what's just been happening? He's just spent the day, possibly the night, with a very wealthy, in the top 1%, tax collector named Zacchaeus. All right, so you got the picture? Who has been, by the way, Zacchaeus, so deeply impacted by Jesus inviting himself to be a guest with this filthy, rich, hated tax collector that Zacchaeus stands up because all the people in town are gawking through the open windows as they did with the wealthy back then. And Zacchaeus makes an announcement. So just turn back to, what is this, verse 8. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's double what the Scripture suggests, too. You see, you can't hang around Jesus very long before he begins to rub off on you. And just his presence can ignite transformation and reformation in your life. And that which you thought you could never let go of, you let go of all because of Jesus. And so Jesus breaks into this big, this big grin because here's this little short, filthy rich tax collector who just said, I'm going to give a half of it away. And Jesus speaks. What is this? Verse 9. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He just joined the chosen, the saved. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says, look, that's why there's religion. That's why there's faith. That's why I came. That's why God became human, so I could seek and save the lost. And then he tells them a story. Here it goes, verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and some of the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Yo, this is it. He's going to be king now. So Jesus said, verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country. Now, I'm just going to give you a little clue. Jesus is talking about himself. Nobody knows that yet, but he's talking about himself. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. I'm going to come back someday. You won't know when. I'm coming back. You got the picture? Verse 13, and so he called ten of his servants, and he gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said until I come back. Now, one mina was worth 100 days of wages. So let's just take the minimum wage today. Now, if you're in California, what's the minimum wage? Jerry Brown, God bless you, Governor. It's now up to $15. But let's just say for the sake of illustration, you're at Andrews, $10. Is it 10 at Andrews? Eight fifty. dollars I'm sorry, guys. Let's just say it's 10. <laughs> Maybe it'll get there someday. Eight, uh, eight hours a day, how much are you going to make? Eight hours a day if it's 10. Eight hours a day, how much are you going to make? 80, 100, 100 days, how much are you going to make? 8,000. I want you to see that. So we're not talking about some piddly little nothing here. It's not a whole lot of money, but it's $8,000. And he entrusted all of them, by the way, in this story. Not different, amount, not different amounts. Everybody gets the same. It doesn't take rocket science to figure out that what Jesus is trying to illustrate here, obviously, is the good God of the universe who gives us all gifts. Everybody gets gifts. Okay. 
So the king goes off, gives them all 10 minas each. Nobody's given more. Nobody's given less. Of course, that's not true. Uh, by the way, they hit the pause button here. That's not true about Americans. Oh, Americans. I was just reading this last week in Stephen Colbert's and Brian Fickert's book, When Helping Hurts, some r- rather sobering stats. I'll put them on the screen for you. Take a look at this. While the average American, okay, in this country lives on more than $90 per day. Now, you're not, you're not, you're not necessarily spending 90 bucks a day, but you're living on it. Gas and insurance and, you know, all that stuff. So, average American lives on more than $90 a day. Approximately 1 billion people on this planet live on less than $1 per day. And 2.6 billion, 40% of the world's population, live on less than $2 a day. And here you and I are moping through the dorm, moping through our domiciles, feeling sorry for ourselves because we don't have enough money. Poor me. Yeah, right. Verse 15. The nobleman now has become king and he returns. Look at this. He was made king and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Just one simple question. You know that money I gave you? You know that money? What'd you do with it? Did you have any money in your life? Good. What did you do with it? That's all I want to know. What did you, what did you do with it? And the rest of the stories about these three, he picks three of the servants out. They come, two out of the three. Yo, master, we multiplied it. Take a look at this. Aren't you proud? The third guy comes up and he says, I didn't do a thing with it. I know who you are. I didn't do a thing with it. And then the master retorts. Punchline of the parable now, this is verse 26. The master says, now the, the, the number three servant, I didn't do anything. I, the master replies, I tell, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as, as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. I love the way Eugene Peterson renders this line. In fact, I have this line posted from Eugene Peterson on the wall just below the window where I have worship every day of my life. Okay, so here's a line. I'll put it on the screen for you. Risk your life, quoting Jesus, risk your life and get more than you ever dreamed of, play it safe, and end up holding the bag. So, yo, what'd you do with that money I gave you? Risk your life and get more than you ever dreamed of, play it safe, and end up holding the bag. And when the story's ended, Jesus waves, adios to Zacchaeus, turns around, and now the story that we began just a moment ago picks up. Verse 28 again, and after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Did you catch that? Maybe you didn't. I want to put it on the screen. He went on ahead. Oh, my, what a blessed thought. You think about this. Whatever is coming my way, help me out, see if this is logical. Whatever is coming my way, if Jesus is going ahead of me, he meets it first. Would that be true? This is not a trick question. If he's going ahead of me, whatever's coming to me goes through him. What's ever happening to you right now, what's ever happening around you right now has already come to him. What's ever ever happening inside of you right now, even inside of your body, it's already come through him. Whatever is going on, he has determined. Now, this is, he he has determined she can do it. That boy, that boy can make it. If you couldn't make it, it wouldn't have come to you. He checks it in advance. That little little, uh, baby just a moment ago, what a precious six-month-old. 
You know that mother? God bless her. Do you think she just dumps a baby in the bathwater and say, hey, Junior, let's get it back. You kidding? You know what a mother does? She holds one baby, she holds the baby under his arm. And what's she doing with her other hand? What's she doing with her other hand? She is checking the water. Isn't that right? Is it too hot? Because if it's too hot, is she going to dump the baby in? Are you crazy? The one who goes ahead checks it all out. He says, I think that boy can handle this. I think that, I think that girl can handle this one. And then it comes to you. Wow. Reminds me of that old gospel hymn. You probably don't know it. Now, you're not a choir. You play instruments. But I need you to kind of back me up, would you? Because I'm going to start singing it. And if you know it, please hide my voice so we can do this right. All right. He leadeth me, oh, blessed thought, oh, heavenly word, with comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. You know the chorus. Come on. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be by his hand he leadeth me. Boy, there's a whole lot in a little line from Scripture. And he went on ahead of them. Whatever's coming to you will go through him first. Let's keep going. All right, so verse 28, and after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, verse 29, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Hit the pause button right there. Did you catch that line? He sent two of his disciples. Wow. The story begins with, he leadeth me, and now the song switches to, he sendeth me. Well, that's pretty good. You know why? Because you and I are in the habit of sending ourselves. That's why. We say, hey, I know what I'm going to do, and I'm sending myself there, and I'm sending myself over there, and I can handle this. And the problem is, when we choose our own place of mission, we choose our own place of sacrifice, the reason it feels so contrived and appears so forced is because we have sent ourselves on a mission for ourselves. When we send ourselves, Jesus said, yo, 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 come back, come back, come back, come back, come back here. I do the sending, you do the going. As the Father has sent me, I'm going to send you. Let me send you. I know what I'm doing. I'll send you to the place where your gifts in this life have been shaped for a shining moment for me. Don't you go ahead, girl. Boy, stay back here now. I send you. Making a big decision, are you? You better be waiting on him. You better be waiting on him and saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my life? Some of you are going to be graduating in a few hours. What do you want me to do with my life? Where do you want to send me? I know what I'd like to do. No, 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 Jesus. You said you do the sending, I do the going. Tell me. Show me. Wow. He leadeth me becomes he sendeth me. Verse 29. And as Jesus approached Bethphage 
In Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, verse 30, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Hit the pause button right there. You know what that would be like? That'd be walking up to a guy's driveway. So you see this beautiful car in the guy's driveway. You see that the keys are in the car. You're getting in the car. You're going to drive off. Jesus said, drive off. Yo, yo, you, what are you doing? What, who do you think you are? Jesus anticipates that's exactly what's going to happen when you drive off with that hot rod. So Jesus says, if they ask you, what's this, uh, verse 30, if anyone, verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Well, that'll get you, that'll get you a car real far down the road. Jesus said, you got to trust me on this one. Verse 32, so those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. By the way, that's life. You will always find it the way Jesus said it is. You will always find it the way he said it is. You can trust him to the max. They found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owners ran up and asked him, why, why, are, you in, why are you untying this coat? And they replied, catch it. The Lord needs it. You didn't catch that. Twice in this single narrative, that single line appears, the Lord needs it. Or as the old King James reads, the Lord hath need of it. Wow. The story begins with, he leadeth me, and then it becomes, he sendeth me, and now it declares, he needeth me. Why do you lead me? Why do you send me? Because I need you. That's why. People go running off after number two when you need the number three. What do you need from me? I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly what I need from you. Wait on me. You're getting, out, you're getting way ahead of me. Come back. Follow me. Whew. He leadeth me. He sendeth me because he needeth me. For the Lord has need of it. Yeah, but come on, come on. Let's be a little reality check here. Does God really truly need anything? Tell me. Help me out here. Does God need anything in this universe? Of course not. The answer is rhetorical. <laughs> no. Look, you got these Bible verses. Let me run them by you. Number one, Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. it the, whole, the, the whole shebang is his. Let's go to the next psalm, Psalm 50. There it is, Psalm 50. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a, what? Thousand hills. Incidentally, the reports we're getting back indicate that not only the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns the hills under the cattle. Let him go on and speak here. Put it back up, please. I know every bird in the mountains. I know the creatures of the field. They're all mine, God says. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. So if the world is his and all that is in it, why does he say the Lord needs it? How can the Lord need anything if he has everything? I mean, look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. By the way, all the money is his. Let's take a look at that. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. So what could a God who has everything possibly need? Guess what? I can only think of one thing. I can only think of one thing. And I'm going to let you figure it out before we put any more on the, on the screen. I can only think of one thing that God possibly needs, what he wants. What do you think God needs? There's one thing he needs that he can't get. What do you think it is? Us. To the head of the class, you may graduate, in fact, uh, in May. Proverbs chapter 23, ladies and gentlemen, verse 16, my child, my child, give me your heart. He owns everything else in the universe except your heart. And that's why he comes to you, my child, my daughter, my son, 
Humbly, he asks, give me your heart. The Lord needs it, but he cannot take it because your heart is yours alone to live. And if you've been giving your heart out to a hundred different people in the short time you're here, there are a lot of people holding on to you now. They have an invested interest in you. You've got to hang on to that heart. It's not worth giving to every flashy soul that walks in front of you. The Lord has need of it. He wants that heart. And you know why? There is nothing. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There is nothing that more quickly, more authentically, and more clearly reveals who has your heart than who has your money. Well, I'd drop it too. (laughs) Who has your heart? I'll find out. Who has your money? My child, my son, my daughter. The Lord needs it. Oh, but he doesn't need anything except, of course, your heart. But nothing more clearly reveals who has your heart than who has your money. Ed Gunger, let me put his words on the screen. Take a look at this. This is rather insightful, I think. Giving touches a nerve in us that nothing else does. We look a lot like God when we do it. When you give, you defy the fear that you won't have enough. You insult greed, the impulse to acquire or possess more than one needs or deserves. If you really believe that God owns it all and that He is your source and provider, giving will be a simple matter. According to Jesus, giving keeps your heart in motion toward God and away from material things. Your heart will follow the direction of your giving, which is precisely the point of this explosive promise in the Bible. We'll end with this. Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. That would be the Old Testament. Last book. It's always hard to find, but it's just before Matthew. Malachi chapter 3. Take a look at this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God speaking. He says, yo, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Did you catch that? The Lord has need of it. Well, what's the need? I need it. I need food in my storehouse, please. I need it, and you have it. Oh, come on, God. You have everything. You don't need... What, are you collecting dollars up there? He doesn't need the dollars at all. He's collecting hearts. And he knows that behind, behind, behind the dollar is a heart. He's going for the hearts, guys, not the bucks. It's the hearts he wants. Bring the whole tithe to me. It's 10% right off the top, 10%. Hey, look it. I, I understand what you need. I'll leave 90% for you. This 10 is for me. It's, it's mine, actually. Bring that 10% to me. Wrap your heart up in the 10%, and I'll take care of the 100% for you. How's that? For as the good book says, or as Jesus put it himself, Luke chapter 16, verse 13 on the screen, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, end quote. So please, give me your heart. Give me your money. The Lord has need of it. How much, Lord? Ten percent. 
I'll stretch the 90. Give me that 10%. I'll stretch what's left. I need your heart. And this is the only way I can know I have your heart if I have your money. I received an email from one of our viewers a few months ago. I tell you, this, this, story, this story is so incredible. I got to share it with you, all right? Hello, Dwight. While we have never met, I truly feel like I know you. My son went to Andrews University, yada, yada, yada. I'm a member and an elder in a very well-known church far, far away from here. I did this in my life. This is my 20th year. But what I'm emailing you about is the sermon you preached on the double tithing challenge. I faithfully faithfully paid tithes since I started working as a teenager to help pay for my Christian education costs and clothing. It's very clear to me that the Lord loves us. Everything is the Lord's, and it's amazing that He only asks 10% and allows us to keep 90%. My wife and I, for most of our adult life, have also given an additional 6% for offering. Wow. Mm -hmm. We have also... We have, we have also been greatly blessed. But I must say that while the concept of a double tithe is not new, it really hit me the way you presented it and the way the Holy Spirit convicted me. You see, my wife has a job, and we need to buy our house. We decided, I'm summarizing now, we decided that if we triple our house payments, if we triple our house payments, we can have this house by September this year. We've been so stressed to keep up with this heavy, heavy of a house payment schedule. We've used up all our savings to keep the schedule going. Therefore, my story. Now, look at So I hear this presentation in the month of August. I talk to my wife, and we decide we will start double tithing my personal business. So that's what they do. So to keep up with our payments tripled to be able to pay the house off, we needed more money, not less, but we're now going to return more. That's what he's saying. How could this be? This is illogical. Since the double payments, this is what's happened. And he made a little chart. So this is, what, this is the story part now. So he made a little chart, and he tells at the bottom of the chart uh, what's happened. So this is September. September. He, they triple house payments. They find they're going to be $100 short. I was in my bedroom and found a $100 bill that I had no clue was there. Thus, our needs were provided for. Check your bedroom. That's the point. Just check the bedroom. That's where stuff is. You don't even know what's in there. Just check it. So he got, they were 100 short. He, got a, he found 100 in his bedroom. Okay, that's September. Now comes October. We were going to be $300 short. I was in my truck and looked in the console between the seats. There from the prior year was a check for $300. Thus, we met the payment. Now, he puts a little, he puts a little word as an exclamation, exclamation, exclamation at the end of every, in this little chart. So the first one to find $100 in the bed, his, ex, his exclamation is, amen. The $300 in the, in the truck is praise God. Now, in, uh, in November, we needed $1,180. They're short. Turns out, in his former job, the director is now, her husband has been given an overseas trip, and they're going on vacation. The woman has used up all her, she has no vacation, accrual time, so they need to hire somebody to step in. He had done the job. He stepped in, and he got paid for stepping in that, mount, that month an extra $4,400. So now the word is at the, at the end here, wow. He types in, wow. This is, this is December. Needed $500 extra. Got an unexpected $1,000 bonus from the place where I work. 
covered. January. Now, I'm not going through his whole life. This is, this is January. Was going to be $1,000 short. Had three checks. Oh, this is one of those three-check months. Had three checks. So received an extra $2,000 and also got a cost of living adjustment of $960. And what's the, ex- the word here is unexpected. Final one, February. Was going to be $1,200 short for February. Was asked to cover a certain clinic. It increased my pay by $31,000 a year, of which $2,583 per month was added. And by the way, he says, we also found a $300 check on the kitchen counter from the year before, and the counter is not cluttered. Yeah, right. It's not cluttered. $300 just sitting there on a clean counter? No way. And that's something, who knows where we go from here. But the February raise will cover what we need on a monthly basis. This is his testimony now. To get out of debt by having the house paid off by our target date of uh, September and have the ability. (sighs) Isn't it funny how we go from worrying about whether we will have enough money to keep up with our goals to the next minute worrying about not entering into the next tax bracket and having to pay more taxes? It's a good problem. It's a good problem, he writes, but we need to trust the Lord at all times. Thank you for your ministry. The Lord is coming soon. Isn't that something? How did that line go? Was this Malachi 3, verse 10? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me, test me, check me out in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Why give? Because the Lord needs. He needs your heart. He wants your heart. He leadeth me. He sendeth me because he needeth me. He leads me and sends me and needs me all the way up the road to Calvary because it's at the cross where at last we're confronted with the stupendous debt God has paid on our behalf. I want to close with these words. 1902, these words are written on the screen. Everything that God could do was done to save a perishing world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our God has made it impossible for it to be said that He could have done more than He has done for the fallen race. When He gave His Son, He gave Himself in one great gift. He poured out the whole treasure of heaven. He, this is the line, He has revealed a love that defies all computation. Isn't that good? A love that should fill our hearts and our lives with gratitude. He has revealed a love that defies all computation. Wow. So Bloomberg boasts, join the 1% and live a decade longer. Jesus counteroffers, join the 10% and live forever. So go ahead, keep the 10%. Keep the 10%. You'll get another decade. Return the 10%, you've got forever. Hey, look, 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 look. Forever, 10 years. Forever, 10 years. Is this really a choice? Let's pray. Oh, God, forever, 10 years. What are we thinking? Well, we know what you're thinking. You climbed that hill, hung on that cross so that you might win our hearts, win us, woo us, draw us. It's not the dollar bills you want. You have them all. It's the hearts that you're longing for. And so I pray for every heart gathered here or anywhere.
you may have our hearts. Please, take our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.